like book club meets letterbox meets greatest hits meets happy hour but all about tv every week three friends make and debate the case if a show is truly essential viewing listen for the hot takes stay for the camaraderie I'm Ezra. I'm Gina. I'm Mallory. And this is The Essentials. This week, we're talking about Hannibal, the psycho horror drama that ran on NBC for three seasons from 2013 to 2015. It is now streaming on Netflix in the U.S. As always, a general warning about spoilers. We will be discussing everything. Does that really ruin a TV show? We don't think so. Now let's get into it. Loosely based on characters and elements of Thomas Harris's Hannibal Lecter novels, the TV series Hannibal centers around the layered relationship between FBI profiler Will Graham, played by Hugh Dancy, and the titular infamous cannibal Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who in this iteration is portrayed by Mads Mikkelsen. The show acts as a prequel of sorts to both the books and the films, depicting for the first time Hannibal Lecter as an active and practicing psychologist and cannibal. He is recruited by Jack Crawford of the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit to supervise Graham, who has an unusual ability to empathize with psychopathic murderers and a tenuous grasp of his sanity. Ezra and Mallory, this was your first time watching Hannibal. What did you ladies think? (laughs) (laughs) It uh, it is a violent show, but I wrote this down. Why does the food have to be so beautiful? We all know what it's hiding. (laughs) Um, this was a lot more graphic than I anticipated. Like, watching it felt like an HBO show, not an NBC show. Like, all it was missing was gratuitous sex, and then it would have been the perfect HBO show. Yeah. In season two, there's a lot of visual sex. (laughs) (laughs) What'd you say? I love gratuitous sex scenes, so... Me too. Here I come. Mm, it's not gratuitous. It does have meaning, but it is it is very shocking to have aired on a network show. <laughs> it feels like a Netflix show. So. Like, the length of it, 13 episodes. Like, I don't think we, we like, give Netflix enough credit for the fact that they created and kind of, like, They didn't create, but they kind of, like, pioneered the 13-episode season with House of Cards. I think so. I think so. No, no, they did not. I think they made it very popular as, like, a format for TV shows in this new golden era of television. I think that... The the 13-episode season has been ongoing for decades. I know, but I think Netflix made it more popular. I think that now it's kind of, like... Uh, a series order, 13 episodes. And I find it surprising that this show on net, on like network television was not a 22 episode season. And I think that's what like makes me like this show and makes me want to continue watching is that the commitment level, like there's a lot of like anxiety that comes into sitting down for a 22 episode binge. And I think that this length makes it very accessible. Like, taking aside how violent it is, but it's also kind of a beauty in in the violence of this show. And then also my first reaction when I, like, watched the pilot was the music and the sound design. They're just spectacular. Wait, did, um, just out of curiosity, this is NBC's show, right? Netflix didn't create it. Yeah. Correct. I mean, I know the 13 season arc has been a thing for a while. I guess, uh... 
you know, HBO's actually been doing it longer with even like 10 episodes. It was refreshing to watch a show like this with a shorter episode arc. For me, it wasn't easy to watch. It required a lot of my attention. This isn't something that you play in the background. You have to sit down and commit to it from beginning to end. And it kind of felt like I was reading a book. I actually, uh, I had to like rewind a lot because I missed certain things and I didn't want to miss those things because all those little details just connect really well. And you're rewarded at the end from paying attention. Like everything ties in into this explosive season finale and it, it was just really well done. I actually like put on subtitles, which is something I never do for, for TV shows. I think I've talked about that a couple times, but I just don't do that. And you're right, Ezra. I didn't want to miss anything. And I also wanted to just like have the volume up very loud to hear the music. And I just wanted the full experience. So I'm like sitting in my living room, air conditioning blasting, volume blasting, watching subs and like trying to like hang on to every single word that Mads is saying, every single word that like you is saying. And I haven't felt this way about a show in a long time, like a very long time where I was just so engrossed and it just went by really fast, like each episode. I've only seen five episodes, so I'm not yet at the explosive season finale, but it is just a beautifully written show, beautifully produced show. Uh, the sound design, the music, I'll keep harping on them. Like I haven't heard anything like this in a long time, uh, coming from like a sporting perspective. And oof, I, I just am very excited to see what's going to happen next because I also wasn't like a huge Silence of the Lambs fan or like enthusiast. I've only seen like Silence of the Lambs aired on TV on like TNT. I've never seen like the full like R-rated cut. So I only know about like Hannibal Lecter as like Anthony Hopkins and, and Jodie Foster. <laughs> Like that's all I know is Clarice. So it drew me to like every single time Hannibal's on on the screen, I just am screaming internally, Do you guys not know? Do you guys not realize that he is a cannibal? And of course the characters don't hear me because I'm just in my living room. But like I think that that tension because a good portion of the audience knows Silence and Lambs and has grown up like with Anthony Hopkins portrayal. And the show kind of feeds off that because like I haven't yet seen overt displays of that behavior where I'm at in the show, but I just know it's coming. And that tension just keeps me watching and keeps me engrossed. The slow reveal is very satisfying because I mean, we go into it knowing who he is and knowing that, I felt more uncomfortable watching him. And I mean that in like the best way possible, just everything he does and everything he says. And Mads Mikkelsen has this like lovely voice. That's just oh my, oh my God. Just <laughs> silk. I know. I, I'm a huge fan. I've, I've loved him since the Royal Affair, which I highly recommend. Um, he's just, oh, he's, Yes, that's actually the best way to say it. He is silk. He's just so, <laughs> so smooth and he's so funny in real life. I've watched him in a bunch of video panels, especially the one that Gina sent a few days ago. And he's just, he's so delightful. And 
he's just dressed like such a GQ man in this show. I he's, love it too. The three piece suits. Yeah, he's, he's disturbing, but just so fucking sexy. God damn it. And like, the fact <laughs> that he's listening to like some of my favorite classical piano pieces while casually eating like human body parts. <laughs> It's just stunning, and I did not know who Mads was before this show. I didn't know who he was, and so I kind of went into this show, like, really blind, like, not knowing much about Hannibal, not really knowing any of the actors except for Lawrence Fishburne because The Matrix, love him, but, like, everything's just new to me. Every single thing is new to me, and I'm just kind of like a kid in the candy shop, just kind of, like, soaking it all in, sitting down. Uh, thank you again, Gina, in advance for letting me know not to eat before watching the show. So I also kind of have to like factor in when I watch the show because I like to sit down and eat, eat food while watching TV. It's enjoyable to me and I can't eat anything before this show for like a good half hour before I sit down to watch it. I can only like consume liquids because I wasn't prepared for that first, uh, scene, season. In uh, the first episode, when he's cutting into lungs, like, I just wasn't mentally prepared for that. Okay, Gina warned me, and I thought, she's exaggerating, it's fine. And then I started watching it, and, yeah, it, she was not kidding around. It was pretty graphic. But I, I do this to myself all the time, where I don't listen to people, and it gets me in trouble. Like, I fainted watching Raw in theaters, like, I passed out in this in the movie theater, the Angelica Film Center. And then I passed out watching one of the episodes of this show because I just don't do well with, like, violence, needles. But aside from that, great show. (laughs) This is my fourth rewatch, I think, of this show, and it continues to be as engrossing as the first time. And I think my appreciation for the show overall just grows with every rewatch um i would recommend if you guys or if you ladies decide to rewatch the show or or as you're continuing to watch this show for the first time um i started wearing headphones while listening to the show while watching it on my laptop this time around and having headphones on brought up so many new dimensions of the sound design that I didn't get from my TV's audio. And that was also really thrilling to, to experience. And I think even more highly now of the oral experience, because Brian Retzel, I think that that's how you say his name. Brian Retzel, his, his work is just out of this world. Yes. Yes, it is. I have loved him since he was a collaborator with Air. Uh, 1998 seminal album, Moon Safari, and then he's been like a collaborator of Sofia Coppola for the begin since the beginning, really. I love the soundtrack to The Virgin Suicides. True story, fun fact, I almost spent $80 yesterday trying to buy The Virgin Suicides soundtrack on vinyl on Amazon, <laughs> because I, I don't know what's going on in the world, but everyone wants that album right now for some reason, and ever since listening to Hannibal and, and the music. I just want to like listen to everything he's doing and like own it. But I digress. I love him. <laughs> I also want to highlight another aspect of the show that I really love. Um, and 
continued to appreciate all the more when I rewatched this show. I think the guest stars that the show has is really incredible. Everyone from Raul Esparza to Gina Torres to um, our, our favorite from Boardwalk Empire, Michael Pitt. He shows up in season two uh, to bit players like Jonathan Tucker, Rutina Wesley, Amanda Plummer, and Zach Quinto. I think um, Anna Klumski, Anna Klumski also does some of her best work in this show. And what is also really fantastic about the casting of characters in Hannibal is that they expanded a lot beyond the movies and beyond the books to reimagine the characters to not just be all white men. And so they changed around the genders of a lot of the characters. Um, like Freddie Lowndes used to be like a male Freddie Lowndes. And Dr. Lana Bloom used to be Dr. Alan Bloom. And they decided, obviously, to make those characters both women. And instead of leaning into the homophobia of um, of the original text, it's much more queer and it's a much more subversive take on the Hannibal story. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you can probably, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but do, like, Will and Hannibal, like, have something? Because I wrote down that the tension is just so, like, it's so palpable between them. And you can cut that tension with a knife. And, like, at times I can't tell if, like, Hannibal's coming on to Will or if it's vice versa. But, wow, I really... It's funny that you mentioned that they lean into the queerness in this show because I feel, I feel that between Hannibal and Will, there's like an admiration <laughs> and a lust even for one another. I, I might have spoiled it for myself, but Hannibal gets around. He's he's oh. a serious slut. Can't wait. <laughs> I'm not gonna say with who, but like, good lord, people I'd never expected, man. I'm really, okay, maybe, maybe, like, I'm asking too much, like, is it Bella? <laughs> Does Hannibal get with Bella? No. <laughs> but you are reading the signals that the show is very blatantly sending you correctly. Okay. And the, the relationship between Hannibal and Will is, is definitely just the, the main through point all through the 39 episodes it's it's very much and oftentimes the cast has joked that while Hannibal the TV show sort of started out as almost like a triple character study of Hannibal Lecter Will Graham and uh, Jack Crawford Lawrence Fishburne always laughs that he is the unwanted party in their little threesome <laughs> I totally see that now I love him and that was like really pleasant surprise to like see him in this show he he's a well-respected actor but in some respects I feel like he's still like not as popular as he should be like I'm guilty of I said it like I love him in the matrix and he's kind of like well he'll always have that but He's just such a brilliant, like, stage actor, and he's done so many great things, and it's great to see him on the small screen, like, in a show like this. He, uh, he shines in every supporting role does, and I hope that someday, oh god, maybe in our lifetime, hopefully, he'll, he'll have a huge leading role that's not 
the Matrix, but I loved him in like um, Ant Man and the Wasp. He was great in that. I love him in this. He's been on. Is the show Blackish? Mm-hmm. I love him in that one. Yeah, he's he's in like everything. I love how he pops up everywhere. More Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> That's like Ezra's Ezra's gavel. More Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> yeah, I need a gavel that lasts every week. time I get the table. Like two weeks ago, more Sarah Paulson. <laughs> yeah, I I'm really into supporting actors and actresses. They're they're great. Can we also talk about Hugh Dancy, uh, an actor that I actually didn't know, like, who he was before this. Also, he's married to Claire Danes, so that's amazing. Love Claire Danes. But he's a great actor. And apparently, he's, he's a British descent, Scottish. Yeah, you can hear sort of, like, lilts coming out of him. He's, I don't know if it's intentional, if he's trying to, like, play Will as, like, a character who had, like, a British past and, but sometimes I keep hearing like little breaks in his accent and I find it delightful. But he is gorgeous. Love his hair. He's a uh, he's got that same gorgeous hair in the movie Evening, which he stars opposite Claire Danes. It's it's not like a great movie, but I love him in it. Was that probably Beth? <laughs> I'm not sure. maybe. Yeah, maybe. I'm just such a sucker for uh, celebrity relationships that begin on set. I just think it's very romantic. Or very messy. <laughs> no no middle ground. Just no. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of relationships on screen, I really loved how Lawrence Fishburne got to act opposite Gina Torres. And I think that lent all of their scenes such great resonance and the two of them together as actors is just, it's so kind of like almost unfair how great they are at their jobs. And yeah. Yes. I love her in 24. I love her in revenge. Uh, she was in like little known again, an NBC show called revolution. And she was like amazing in that. Uh, I, I love Gina Torres. She was great in this. Oh, I had like a fun little, thing we were talking about this over text but i think that this show is surprising that it's on network television and that like nbc just has a track record of doing their 10 p.m friday night slot dirty uh this show reminds me so much of dracula in the level of horror and in the like quality of the show and nbc didn't give it the time of day only one season and it was a beautiful show and I, I kind of feel like NBC, again, doesn't know what to do with horror in general or like adult, more adult content. I think the rating on this show was like TV MA, which is pretty strong for NBC. So, I mean, I don't think I'm a fanable, but maybe I am. I, I kind of want Netflix to come in and save this show. Like it is the perfect Netflix show. Netflix, if you're listening, save this show. Yeah. Horror, I think, is better when it's serialized. With the exception of obviously a few wonderful movies like Get Out, but you can just explore so much more. Like you can you can explore just the psychology of the characters. You can add more stories. Like it's, I think the beauty of Hannibal is it's a horror show that's also like a crime show. 
each episode is different while tying in the bigger story. And, like, I think I love that it's not just a straight procedural. Like, I think you were saying, Gina, that CBS wants to do a Clarice show. That's... Mm -hmm. In the fall. Yeah, and I think I wouldn't have liked Hannibal if it was a straight procedural. Like, I love, like, said it many, many times, character studies. I love, like, serialization. Like, that keeps me going in a show, and it's going to keep me watching Hannibal. And it just, like, sucks that NBC consistently is doing this to, like, really great TV shows at that 10 p.m. slot. They just don't know what to do with. So I I just really hope that, like, NBC can figure it out for the next one. (laughs) Do you guys know what's on NBC Friday nights at 10 right now? I have no clue. (laughs) I know, actually. I'm I'm like 90% sure it might be The Blacklist now, which surprises me because oh. I think it used to be like a Tuesday at 10 kind of show or Thursday at 10. Um, and so I do think it is sort of like that weird, weird time slot where it's you can do a little bit more that outrageously creatively, but you may not get the viewership. And I think that was very true for Hannibal when it was on air. Um, it's hovered around a two rating during its first season but then illegal downloads which do not factor in or at least like did not factor in as much back then into business decisions for networks for each illegal downloads would regularly go up to like 2.5 million downloads over the weekend for for torrents of this show Is that like there's a, and then like Game of Thrones torrents, or is that like on par? No, no, quite below Game of Thrones because I think Game of Thrones torrents went from like six million to twelve million over the course of like the first few seasons, and so Game of Thrones continues to be that like blockbuster outlier. But there is very noticeably, I think, like a a dedicated core Hannibal fanable um, audience that is really active and continues to be really active in their love for this show. Yeah. the uh, I think this is a better show than Game of Thrones. And I think it shows like the fan dedication, the shows it hasn't aired in like years and people are still thinking about it. And whereas you have the situation where Game of Thrones had that God awful last season and it oh, kind of God. became people just going like, I've wasted so many years of my life for this. And now I'm just, I personally have kind of erased the show from my mind. Yeah. It's incredible. I'm like a huge book reader and fan. And I agree with you. I try not to think about that last season, but Hannibal. Yeah. Enter Hannibal. (laughs) Now we have Hannibal. I have Hannibal, Boardwalk Empire. What we would do in the shadows for me. <laughs> have we have we talked about Mads Mickelson? Like in No. Okay. Right. <laughs> like I said, I don't know much about him. So this is like he's very new for me. He He's perfect. He yes. Actually that's that's all I'm gonna say. He is perfect. He is <laughs> he's fantastic <laughs> on film. Like He's had some amazing dramatic roles, like The Hunt, A Royal Affair. 
He's appeared. Casino Royale? Yes. He was in Casino Royale? Yes. He was the chief. He oh, also that's... comes back in Quantum of Solace. That's him. Oh, my gosh. Perhaps his skin was smoother. He has, like, the smoothest skin. And I imagine <laughs> younger, it's, like, glossy. He was fantastic in that. He is a very perfect, like, menacing type of presence. Yeah. But just also so suave and a charm that's off the charts. Oh, my gosh, yes. He was also in the MCU. What was his role? Too in much movie? eyeliner. Too much eyeliner in Doctor Strange, yes. <gasps> yes! <laughs> I love it. I love that, like, he's in all of these shows and movies that I respect and admire, and he's just always off to the side, just, like, a little bit to the side. He's not, like, the main focus, but he's important, but, like, you wouldn't <laughs> spend a lot of time looking at him, which clearly I haven't. So I'm just so happy that he's getting his due in this show. He oh, I love has it. to crack into, like, mainstream American cinema, but... I think the show has helped viewers be more aware of his um, international success. I mean, I remember on Tumblr back in the day that there were just so many Hannibal gifts of him. So that's how I kind of like found out about this show originally was Tumblr gifts. <laughs> um, I also think, and this might be controversial for, for some folks who are big fans of the movies, but I think of the four different actors who have portrayed Hannibal on screen, I really do feel very strongly that Mads Mikkelsen has the best portrayal and the most chilling portrayal of Hannibal Lecter. There's Gaspard Ulliel, I think how you... There's Gaspard yeah. Ulliel, who played Hannibal in... Red Dragon, and then our favorite uh, domineering patriarch, Logan Roy, he actually originated the role, Brian Cox, with the movie Mindhunter. And then obviously Anthony Hopkins is very well known and well lauded for Silence of the Lambs, but also in two other movies after that. But I think when you compare all four of those performances side by side, Mads gets the crown. I agree with you. And I love Silence of the Lambs. Like, definitely Mads, and then, like, Anthony Hopkins after that, for me. Those are the only two Hannibal Lecter's that I've seen. (laughs) (laughs) I think what makes it so chilling is Anthony Hopkins, obviously, I think he owns on the, the horror of Hannibal Lecter, especially with the way he delivers his lines, but Mads Mikkelsen just brings like a chilling calmness. He's just so, just like silky smooth actor. Yeah. yeah, he's, he, he seems normal if you don't know anything about Hannibal Lecter. He's just this cool dude who wears great suits. And, like, obviously I don't know the resolution of it, but I just find it so chilling that the character of Abigail just, like, immediately knows that he is up to no good. And I just want to know more about how she's able to, like, sense that from him, where he's able to fool everybody else. And I also find that just, like, that tension, like, 
we as the audience know that he is like an evil character. Abigail has figured it out in her own way, or so she thinks where I'm at currently in the show. And yes, you've got like Will, you've got Jack, you've got everyone else just like Dr. Lecter is amazing, isn't he? And he cooks some great food. Like that to me is what's so chilling about this show. It's like the audience perception because we know who Hannibal Lecter really is. I mean, if I ever had a psychologist or a therapist like that, I would definitely run now. But like, if I got a guy like that, not knowing anything about Animal Lecter, I'd be like, hey, look at you. (laughs) Yeah, like my psychiatrist is unnervingly very, very attractive. I'm getting distracted during our therapy sessions. (laughs) So now I'm, uh, Having, I don't know what it is, but lately in the last decade, a lot of horror movies and horror TV shows have been focusing on villainizing Scandinavians, and it's great because now I'm terrified of, I'm terrified of all of them. <laughs> uh, you have Hannibal, you have Midsummer. Yeah. It's unsettling. But then again, white people are terrifying, so. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to get into deeper dives, or do we have any more initial thoughts? I said I'm ready. Okay. Mallory, do you want to go further into into the music part? Yeah, as I said earlier, the music and the sound design are, like, two of the big reasons why I was, I was drawn in to this show and will continue to watch it. Uh, we said it before with Brian Retzel, who has done the soundtrack and score to Lost in Translation, Marie Antoinette, and The Virgin Suicides, which is personally my favorite of Sofia Coppola's scores and soundtracks. He just creates this beautiful, beautiful music that just envelops you. I went to NYU for grad school and I studied film scoring. And when you're at film school and you're trying to, like, learn about scoring, you're taught that you shouldn't be making music that breaks that fictional setting. They call it non-diegetic music is that underscore. And diegetic music is the music that you would hear in a scene where someone's, like, playing music on the radio in a car, and then somehow that music becomes what you're hearing, like, on screen in the scene. And so you're taught when you're doing your underscoring to kind of like keep it very muted and kind of keep it like under the surface. Obviously, there are like notable exceptions with John Williams and the work that Bernard Herrmann did with Hitchcock in Psycho, where that like non-diegetic music becomes part of like the framework of a scene and the framework of a movie. And even more so with TV scoring, the music that composers are trying to like produce is normally very like mellow, none of the service. Uh, there's that like hysterical video of a cat just like playing on a synthesizer and there's someone says it sounds like A24 scores, but that's literally what you were taught in film schools to like stand at the surface and just kind of like suddenly nudge the audience to feel certain emotions that you as like a film director, writer want them to feel. What's so, like, revolutionary about this TV score is that this non-diegetic music just, like, breaks into the scene, and it's like an earworm drilling into your brain, and 
In some cases, the music is overpowering the dialogue, which is another reason why I had to use subtitles, because you literally can't hear what the characters are saying, because the music is so loud and unnerving, and you're hearing, like, harpsichords, like, you're hearing, like, strings on the piano, you're hearing, like, all of these native and traditional instruments from different cultures, you're hearing, like, loud synths, strings, is just so reverberating and enveloping that you, I felt uncomfortable when I was watching the show. And that's just like very revolutionary to me that Brian Retzel just made this decision to like go music first, dialogue second. And Brian Fuller was like, okay. And I, I could talk about this forever, but it just doesn't fade away when you want it to. It just keeps getting louder. And you just feel even more scared and nervous than you already do watching just like a scene that was like scored normally with like a more subdued score. Retzel talked about this in some of the special features on the DVD box set, (laughs) which, of course, I have watched many times. And another really interesting, fascinating thing about his involvement with this project is that they only actually meant for him to do the score for the first episode. And they had planned, like with a lot of other TV shows, to just sort of hand it off to um, a, a less prolific composer to to just do the rest but he somewhat volunteered himself and he was like no I'll just do the rest of them and uh, he continued to do the rest of them in his own way and the average score for this show is like a full 40 minutes which is kind of wild since the show itself is like 43 minutes yeah and I'm excited for you to hear the music in season two and season three, because I think it just continues to swell and overwhelm. And you bring up like a good point. That's also another thing that you're taught in like scoring classes is about breaths and pauses and music should have phrasing and there is no break. There is no pause in the music. It just kind of, it's kind of like drone music in a way where it starts off very quietly and then just kind of builds to the end. And then you're just like hit with a wall of sound. So I think that would be like the, the like easiest, like metaphor to what the, his music is, is that it's drone music. And I've never seen a network television show that uses drone music as a score or that is, like, greenlit from, like, executives at network television studios. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe that's, like, another reason why NBC was, like, let's access shit. There's not enough, like, popular music or radio, like, top 40 hits. But, man, I really admire Brian Fuller for just, like, letting Brian Retzel do his thing. The executive producer and director of the first episode, David Slade, was one of the folks who sort of connected Retzel and Fuller together to to get him involved in this project. So, yeah, don't normally see that happening. (laughs) I love Brian Retzel's work. I've been following him ever since I first saw Lost in Translation. And he's... He's my writing music composer. Like anytime I'm working on my scripts, LOL, I listen to his music because it's so calming and it really gets me into the zone, especially since my dream is to work with him someday. But this score, 
I love it because it was so unsettling. I had to turn up the volume because I needed the dialogue louder, but that meant the music was twice as loud. And on several occasions, my boyfriend came into the room and he's like, you have to lower that. It's, it's making me nervous. <laughs> and I was just like, I can't, I can't hear the dialogue because the music is just so loud. And he's like, put on the subtitles. And I was like, come on. I just need to hear them too. It was, there, there was just no break either. This kind of reminded me of my experience watching Les Mis. They're obviously two completely different things, but the movie adaptation, the singing never ended. There was no dialogue. It just, they kept singing everything. And the score felt like that where it fades out and then it comes back. And I was like, oh, okay. It was just, it was wonderfully twisted. God damn it. He's a genius. Yes, he is. But also Air, like, he comes from that group. Air is also amazing. And that's what they became famous for, like, is Sofia Coppola being like, score version suicides, do whatever. And that soundtrack, if you ever listen to it, it's just like the craziest 70s inspired synths. And that's like, all they used was just synthesizers and like, of course, Brian Wetzel on the drums. They were just jamming and creating like this crazy atmosphere. And I think Brian Wetzel has like carried that with him throughout his career. It shows or rather, you can hear it in the score for Hannibal. One of my biggest regrets was missing Record Store Day last year, where they released the Lost in Translation album on vinyl. Naturally, everyone got it, and it was reselling on eBay for, like, triple digits, and I was so pissed off, because now they're slowly starting to release the scores on vinyl, and everyone's just like, I gotta have it. I might spend $80 on the, on the Virgin Suicide score. Yeah, that's probably why I can't get that, that like score on vinyl. I justify it. I justify an $80 purchase. Thank you. I had to tell my husband that you said so. Cause he was like, don't. Oh, man. <laughs> I need a lockdown getting, uh, getting the Hannibal soundtrack on, on vinyl. Cause I think they also did release all three seasons as well. <laughs> yeah, the next time you have a dinner party, I want you to play the soundtracks. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'd be able to eat if we did that. <laughs> I just want to see everyone's reaction, just like side eyes and everyone's clearly uncomfortable. Ooh, I would love that. Well, I was reading an article, uh, Vulture did an interview with him, and he said that he does his scores so people can kind of just like sit back in darkness and relax. I'm like, what? There's no way that I'm going to relax while listening to this score, just casually. Sit back and squirm. (laughs) (laughs) I really want to hear more about the food stuff, Ezra. I don't want to, like, but I've been on the edge of my seat waiting to hear hear this deep dive. Oh, my God. I did brief research because I, having just started watching this show, I didn't know much about Janice Poon before, but I... Went through her blog, and she has some impressive credits, including the first season of American Gods and The Shape of Water. And having seen Hannibal, I can see that she consulted on The Shape of Water because the pies that she sketched in her notebook and seeing them on screen, I was just like, ooh, they're they're odd and bizarre and wonderful. And that's how I felt watching Hannibal. Like, she did a phenomenal job. Everything looked exactly like 
it was supposed to. And you can tell because I was unsettled when he started carving into the human lungs. I was just like, stop it. Stop doing that. Please stop destroying those lungs. Don't eat them. She grew up in a family with restaurants in a small town, so she was always around food. And in her interview with GQ, she said that means like chopping vegetables and doing mise en place before she went to school. So you can tell she has this huge background. And she's wonderfully twisted. Like, I'm going to quote another part of that interview. She said, I'm happy to say the snails were my horrible idea. It's circular also. The bottom of the food chain, eating the top of the food chain, and then back again. You don't know me, but I'm really a nice lady. I don't think of diabolical things to do except when pressed to by an employer. Here, in this case, Brian Fuller. Oh, my gosh. I'm not there yet with the snails, but I, I can't wait to see what she does with it. The beauty of it is I'm not at the snails either, but I... I can visualize what she means. Like, I get what she's talking about because that is something Hannibal would do. Like, she's able to get into his mind and interpret her work accordingly. I think you're also somewhat overlooking Jose Andres's role because he was the culinary consultant on the show. And so Andres, Janice Poon, and Brian Fuller basically were sort of the core food ideators of the show. And so a lot of the choices were also informed by Andres's enthusiasm for, for the food and his enthusiasm for specifically Hannibal Lecter, the character. And so, um, like the lungs, that was, that was his idea in discussing the, the appetites of Hannibal, he actually shared with Brian Fuller that technically you can break down every single part of the human body for consumption, even the bones. Ugh. What? <laughs> I know. Like, wow. I love this show even more that they have like food ideation because that's like something that I had to wrestle with watching the, these, these episodes was that, like, Hannibal's talking about some delicious food, like, foie gras and, like, all these yummy cuts of meat, but having to, like, realize that it is not animal flesh, but human flesh is just, it's a lot. It's a lot for me. And I'm and it looks so delicious. So delicious. I'm so happy that, like, they were thinking about this, but, wow, that level of detail is impressive. One of my favorite scenes is when Hannibal is dining with Graham, Freddie, and Abigail, and Freddie has opted to eat completely vegetarian. She gets a salad, and she says one of my favorite lines, which is, I can't believe you're destroying that with meat. And I was just sitting there wondering, I wonder if he put any cannibalistic twist on her salad, like in the dressing maybe, because he would do that. Like, you could technically, like, I guess put bone broth in there somewhere. I was over it. Yeah, I I was just like, you're probably not exempt from this, Freddy. He's probably found a way to make you eat part of a human, and that's gross. And that's why I love him. He's so twisted. Uh, did you two also happen to notice that that the name of every episode is also food related? Yep. No, I didn't. But now I'm going to look that up. The entire first <laughs> is named after French culinary terms. Because I was like, mm-hmm. ooh, 
oof is like an egg, right? In French. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The tradition continues in season two with Japanese dishes and in season three with Italian dishes. Oh my god. I love it. I did not pay attention to that, but I love it so much. That's one of the reasons why you have to keep rewatching this show. You find new things to enjoy with each I imagine with each watch, Gina, you've watched it more than us. Yeah. <laughs> and I think my deep dive kind of um really reflects how much I have thought about this show and how much thought went into the creation of the show. And so stop me at any time if you feel like it's getting overwhelming. Oh, no, please. Regale us. All right. So as a super fan, as an ACA fan, I could go on a lot about this show. Um, Specifically for this podcast, um, where we're really dissecting what makes the show essential, um, I, I think a lot about how this show depicts Hannibal and specifically the implicit and subtextual framing of Hannibal Lecter as the devil or Satan or Lucifer or 666. And, it, and that depiction draws from the rich foundations of the books and elevates this show to to have it go beyond your normal investigative procedural. Um, it goes beyond your general serial killer story. And the show boldly, viscerally interrogates life, the mind, violence, divinity, and more. It, it just like it, it just tackles so much. Credit where credit is due, it was Mads Mikkelsen himself who is considered the source of this framing. He, in his first conversation with Brian Fuller about potentially taking on this role, um, opened their conversation about wanting to really differentiate his portrayal of the character to make it different from Anthony Hopkins and to make it different from Brian Cox and talked about, um, talk, talked about Hannibal as a tempter and, and as a devil figure. Um, the show then through many, many references and through the characters interactions goes on to reify that at every turn on, on how apt that characterization is. <laughs> okay. Digging into the character interactions first is not uncommon on screen to have stand-ins for sex and Hannibal the show is no stranger to using allegories of intimacy in place of sex. Though the show in later seasons, as we mentioned before, does get pretty explicit. It is, however, oftentimes like outside the bedroom, and, and both of you have witnessed this, where the sexual tension is the highest. And we see that those connections happen most intensely over meals, in therapy sessions, and through murder. These are all forms of communion to Hannibal in a, both a secular and religious sense. He seduces his patients and his associates through his communications with them, uh, and he entices them to learn more about themselves and to give into their truest selves, which is often like their darkest selves. He tempts and offers knowledge, just like the serpent tempted Adam and Eve into eating the fruit from the tree of knowledge uh, in the Garden of Eden. And Hannibal's sort of ultimate game plan or, or ultimate desire with his interaction with Will is to 
have Will sort of give in to, you know, his innermost feelings, the feelings that Will Graham is like a very emotionally repressed man does not like to access or interrogate at all. <laughs> wow. Then there's Hannibal himself as like a true Renaissance man in, in many, many ways. The first um, version of, of a Renaissance man is, is the colloquialism for a man of many talents. And obviously we see that on screen from his cooking to his, uh, to his sketching to his incredible murder sculptures. Um, he's also obviously like a, pretty successful psychiatrist and a very, very intelligent scholar and scarily manipulative. He's also a polyglot. We see him speak a lot of Italian later on. And of course, he's, you know, the very impressive, scary serial killer. <laughs> but symbolically, he is also a Renaissance man, as in the transitional art, literary, religious, political, and intellectual movements that uh, took place from the 1300s to the 1600s. On the art side, we find out in season three that he's long been obsessed with Botticelli's Primavera painting, um, particularly the painting's depiction of the god Zephyrus seducing the nymph Chloris. That also parallels the story of Leda in the Swan, a painting of which Hannibal has in his dining room, which is often prominently in frame throughout seasons one and two whenever Hannibal is hosting people over for dinner. And we can look at Hannibal's interactions manipulating people as mirrors to this mythoi. When he kills and eats his victims, the elaborate feasts and the, the different murder tableaus are also reminiscent of Renaissance still lifes. Caravaggio, too, was also famous for his brutal depictions of very violent struggles. We see more tribute to that in the show's overall aesthetic from from the backlighting and the extreme shadows of the chiaroscuro style of cinematography that the show has to the many, many brutal slashes and splatters of blood. Another one of his famous paintings is Judith beheading Holerphanes <laughs> and, and lots of heads, lots of just severed heads all around. And so that's also very Hannibal-esque. Um, the sometimes very frank presentation of cadavers on the show as well recalls market still lifes of, of the Renaissance. And a good reference there is Anabale Karachi's Butcher Shop. <laughs> um, what also greatly differentiated artists of the Renaissance was the intertwining of philosophy and religion in their works. Hannibal's Memory Palace, um, which you see glimpses of in season one and much more in seasons two and three, is literally within a cathedral, the normal chapel of Palermo. And then while Catholicism's imagery and geography play large roles in informing Hannibal's aesthetics, the Renaissance also greatly informs his perspective on humanity and divinity, especially with the Protestant Reformation taking place during that time, and I think the work of John Calvin in particular. Calvin, <laughs> somebody we probably don't think of very often in our normal lives, but you may remember from, from history class, if you had a good history teacher, um, he's... <laughs> Yes, exactly. He he is most known for the doctrine of predestination, wherein, quote, all are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. And accordingly, as each has been created for one or other of these ends, we say that he has been predestinated to life or death, end quote. 
Hannibal as a god figure, as a devil figure, follows this really acutely and in most instances rebukes the description of his eating other humans as cannibals. It would only be cannibalism, he posits, if he ate his equals. And he doesn't consider other people his equals. And so while a lot of past analyses view this as a Darwinistic approach, where, where Hannibal is sort of like an apex predator, the show makes it clear that most of Hannibal's killings and his eating is really rooted in his apathy towards other humans and that he just thinks that most people are lesser creatures. As an aside, Darwin's theory of evolution, too, requires like a really long time span to, to allow natural selection to happen, whereas this story is very much concentrated on like four or five critical years of Hannibal's life. The other major tenet of Calvinism that's central to Hannibal as the devil is Calvin's core thesis itself from the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Quote, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. So the knowledge of God part, at least, or of power of life and death, recurs a lot on the show, where we see Hannibal revealing himself to his victims right before he murders them. Over the course of the show, he has this tango with Will about his true identity as the Chesapeake Ripper and, and as other named serial killers. Hannibal reveals himself and is rejected over and over again, actually. And so in season two, in, in the episode Mizumono, he says to Will, I have let you know me, see me. I gave you a rare gift, but you didn't want it. And after Will betrays him. I think it really just like makes me appreciate the show even more with this context, uh, especially like Calvinism. Like that just like, like I've always like struggled with the character of Hannibal Lecter and cannibalism, but like that context that the show is like delving into him as a true Renaissance man of the Renaissance period coming into conflict with like Protestants and Calvinism and that he is eating people that he does not view as equals. That just like really blows my mind. And I just want to see more of this show to see how this all kind of like comes into play. I think what you said was just like so beautiful and so true. And I have nothing more to say. I mean, I, I was watching the show purely for research. I was obviously, but with everything Gina just said, I, I think I have to actually start from the beginning now because there's so much I missed. Particularly, like, I didn't notice the painting Lita and the Swan at all. I just yeah. thing on the food. That like, was another area where S&P had an issue. They, they like, sort of need to strategically blur that painting because they said it was obscene. It's take Latin in high school. It's not obscene. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That particular painting is pretty, uh, it's pretty risque if you Google it. <laughs> I've sat so. on that in class in high school. I know. I know those kids learned some smut. Some glory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To the second part of, of Calvin's thesis about knowing ourselves. So, so that comes more into play towards the, the latter part of the show where Hannibal has sort of confessed to the group, in a sense, his true identity 
and, and people realize who exactly he is and how dangerous he is. But Will obviously has this very complicated relationship with him. They have this like sexual tension and they, they have conflicts about actually like basically like DTR defining their relationship. And Hannibal, after one conflict where Will has essentially betrayed him, laments, I have let you know me, see me. I gave you a rare gift, but you didn't want it. And so that rejection of of Hannibal and then that rejection by Will of his own feelings is basically him denying knowledge of himself. And so Hannibal's less mortal but more macabre self-realizations that he manipulates and forces onto those in his circle is is sort of like that that second part of why he is this devil figure that is that is tempting everybody around him with this knowledge and then finally fittingly what did the renaissance in history lead to the age of enlightenment and so that also fits together and so then by the time we get to the series ending at least for now in season three hannibal as the devil figure actually becomes explicit the Red Dragon storyline makes up the latter half of the third season. And in one exchange, Francis Dollar Hyde and Hannibal are talking. And the former approaches the latter, wanting, quote, to be recognized and to sit before Hannibal as the dragon sat before 666 in Revelation. And so he, he's just saying straight up, like, Hannibal, you're the devil. <laughs> and then in the penultimate scene where our would-be hero, Will Graham, finally fully, quote, becomes, as he foretold to Gillian Anderson's Bedelia, he formally transforms into his truest self by murdering Dollarhide with Hannibal. Spoiler. And achieving the no- that knowledge of self and becoming wholly enlightened. And then after their shared triumph, they embrace and they fall. They, they like literally fall down together, just like Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden and just like Lucifer himself fell from heaven. And yeah, it's so many rewatches to like get to this point. <laughs> that was beautiful, Gina. Like, I have nothing more to add if you want to move on to like, I want to know like your final take and, and what you think about the future of the show. Like, that's what I want to know. Do you have anything uh, you want to add, Ezra? <laughs> No, I mean, um, I think another wonderful aspect of the show is that Gina just spoiled everything, and I'm okay with it, because I just want to see it now. I'm like, and the beauty is, like, she's describing characters that I'm like, who? So it's fine. <laughs> yeah, same. It's like you come into this show knowing that, like, who Hannibal Lecter is, and, like, we all know, like, who he is and what he's going to become. Like, now the fun is, like, watching it happen. And, I mean, the show alludes to all these things. Like, I I have a pretty good sense of who's going to get killed and who's going to get eaten. And, I yeah. mean, Will is obviously completely messed up and is going to go through a lot of things. So I can't wait to see all that. Yeah, he's going to go to the dark side. Like, it's going to happen. Hugh Nancy just continues to do a fantastic job throughout. Mads Mikkelsen just continues to also do fantastically. And then he, he and Lawrence Fishburne too, like the dynamic between Jack and Hannibal is just really singularly fascinating and in a very different way than Hannibal's relationship with Will is. And so can't wait to see it. Season two is actually my favorite season, I think. 
some of the show's most standout episodes are are in that season, particularly the um, mid-season finale, as well as the season two finale. Mizumono is is really just absolutely transcendent. And we also get to see Lawrence Fishburne and Mads Mikkelsen fighting. Yes, I can't wait. Wait, I didn't, I didn't hear you. Did you say fighting or did you say the other one? What would be the other word? <laughs> <laughs> everyone sleeps with everyone. Oh, oh, no. No, <laughs> no but like they, they, like the Morpheus side of Lawrence Fishburne basically uh-huh. comes out. Oh, uh, so I just needed to confirm. I was like, wait, what? I can't wait to see that. Oh. <laughs> My like final take on this show is that it just goes above and beyond in so many ways. Um, if you go online to like the Hannibal Reddit thread, they're like still super active into diving into everything. If you go on Tumblr, like people are still posting thousand page essays or thousand word, thousand word essays. I, I look at a lot of fandom academic journals and Hannibal continues to be like a really robust uh, academic research topic there. And so whether or not we get more of the story set in this particular universe, the there's so much to look at beyond what's on the screen, but also what's on the screen can engross you forever. I think it's definitely essential. I mean, I'm sitting here saying I'm going to rewatch everything that I've just watched without doing any research. Just I need to enjoy it. I mean, I, I enjoyed it the first time, but now I'm going to look out for things that I probably didn't notice the last time. Yeah, it's definitely essential. Like, I want to keep watching. I'm going to go watch after we finish recording. Like, <laughs> this show is essential to me, and I didn't even know it existed before a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to want to add in, in in case like anybody feels intimidated by this show like it's it's only 39 episodes it, it in total it's like about like maybe like 31 32 hours so not that bad and then also it's surprisingly very funny in spite of being very dark and very grim at times it's it's there is this self-aware levity that the show has about itself that is really, really fun. Maybe. <laughs> you guys don't seem convinced of that. <laughs> I haven't gotten no, any parts yet. It's still very serious. No, no, there were parts where I was like, am I supposed to be laughing? What's wrong with me? He's he's eating <laughs> Yeah. But they, like, right from the get-go, people are eating people. That's okay. The sausage. The sausage in, in the first episode that Hannibal brings to Will. That's people. I know. Yes. Sitting there, yeah. like, this guy <laughs> is giving other people people. People. And like the uh, balsamic reduction. It's an incredibly essential TV show. Just don't watch it when you're eating. And that wraps up another episode of The Essential. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time. If you've liked what you've heard, uh, leave a rating or review on the platform of your choice. Thanks. We'll see you next week. <laughs>